Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Welcome everyone to today's lunchtime lecture. I'm Ellen, I work at the ODI and I'm delighted to welcome Chris Emerson who is a specialist in geographical information and he's going to be talking us through how data helps save lives at sea and maybe in some ways that you weren't aware of. A little bit of housekeeping, we are recording so please keep your cameras off and audio muted. This talk will be available as a podcast afterwards if you want to catch up. Uh, if you have any questions during the talk, then please put them in the chat. And once um, Chris has finished, I will uh, ask you to turn the audio on and ask them, or if you prefer, I can ask them for you. And uh, I think that is everything. So I'm gonna hand over to Chris now. Great. Thank you very much, Ellen. Um, hopefully uh, you can hear me okay um, and can see that front slide. Um, okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, so my name is Chris Emerson. I work uh, with the University of Southampton uh, in the Institute for uh, the, the Geodata Institute. Um, and I work with uh, in GIS and sort of get involved with all things to do with spatial data. Um, so over the next 20 minutes or so, uh, I'm going to present our project on marine incident data that we've recently completed. Uh, this was funded by uh, Lois Register uh, and supervised by the ODI. Um, and it's essentially, I think of it as like a proof of concept project, really, uh, to harmonise marine incident data and, and to look at the feasibility of, uh, of making it open and accessible. Uh, it's delves into the, the technical considerations a little of why it's actually quite difficult to do this, to create a joined up picture uh, of, of data in the marine uh, rescue context. Um, and it's one of the reasons why it hasn't actually been achieved yet by any of the agencies. But a, a huge amount of progress has been made over the last uh, 12 months, despite the, the pandemic and everything. But this project has really been a catalyst to bringing the agencies together. So this, this project involves standardising the data format, if you like, some of the attributes and, and how they're exchanged. And I'm going to conclude the, the, the presentation by uh, looking at how we've proposed a way to develop an open marine incident data model, uh, how that can be achieved. Uh, and, and also to really wrap, to wrap it up, uh, just to uh, give a nod to uh, the, the project that preceded this, um, that looked at ways of harnessing free data that's out there for um, for the you know for the good of the, the marine incident rescue sector. Okay, so <clears throat> so when you ring nine 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 and ask for the coast guard, uh, a variety of uh, different organisations come together to perform. Um, obviously a rescue which is nothing short of heroic um, and really this appears seamless um, but under the surface it's it's quite a convoluted sort of process really this is this uh, graphic is essentially a swim lane diagram going from left to right and each of the lanes uh, represents an agency that might be called upon to respond um, so when you actually make that 99 call uh, there's a a call centre, the Coast Guard have a call centre um, and they will they will respond. They will make a decision based upon the circumstances as to who to who is best placed to respond. Um, 
but whatever happens, they start a process of recording data about the incident and they carry that through right to the end. They may, as is the case with about 50% of marine rescue incidents, you, you know, the average person would think it's more than that, but the RNLI actually respond to about 50% of incidents. They may call upon the services of the RNLI who will start recording themselves a separate uh, chronicle, if you like, of the event uh, and what happens. Um, obviously, you get the picture. They might involve the police, air ambulance, uh, normal ambulance, other blue light operators. There are, there's quite a, a number of different private rescue organisations that operate around the coastline as well. It certainly isn't the case where there's just, just one agency. So this project just focuses on the, the um, sort of fusion, if you like, between the Coast Guard and the RNLI, because they deal with the lion's share of, of these incidents. Um, okay. <clears throat> so before you can share data openly or release data openly to the public, it's, it's got to be shared internally first. And this sort of begs the question as to why would two different agencies, in this case, the RNLI and MCA, want to share their information anyway? Um, you know, what use is it? Well, the graphic shows in uh, sort of a sim in a simplistic way the, the number of incidents on the vertical axis and the number of attributes on the horizontal axis. The MCA have sight of all incidents, as you might expect. That after all, they take the, the 999 call. The RNLI have sight of 50% of those. They respond to about 50%. But the RNLI append a huge number, um, I think about 200 attributes to an incident as it's unfurling. Um, the, their lifeboats collect, have automatic sensors, they collect, uh, you know, information on the environmental conditions, the sea state, all that sort of thing. Uh, and they obviously get to know the person that's, uh, that ends up on the lifeboat, hopefully, and find out what actually occurred. And there's quite a, quite a, a lot of detail that's added in appended to the record after it's happened um which is really of use to the the coast guard but they never really get sight of that they ne never really have sight of that now <clears throat> if we take it forward into an open data context um open data really would sit in that bottom left hand corner where you have a much reduced number of incidents uh, that you would release to the public um there are lots of training exercises and all sorts of other incidents that don't need to be added um, but more importantly a much much reduced level of attributes no personally identifiable information obviously would be released and and the rnli have actually um, started to release their uh, data in 2020 and as i said this project's probably been a, a quite a bit of a catalyst towards that they have um, their return of service data as of 2020 is now open in, in, a, in a partial form, which is good. So, uh, just to have a look at the data that we've been dealing with. This uh, map represents about 16,000 incidents, um, 17,000 nearly. Uh, these are the Coast Guard incidents for the year of 2016, five years ago. Um, and as you can see there, uh, quite, a lot, quite a lot of them, um, obviously nearer the coast, there's, there's, there's a lot more nearer the coast than, than further away. The RNLI data, if we superimpose that, are the pink dots. Um, and you would think that it would be quite a simple process. Let's just join these 
you know, join the two data sets together with a, a, a common field. Well, there is a common field. It's called the global incident number. Uh, and it's appended to the record when at the point where the Coast Guards are, are on the call, they're on the emergency call, and their database applies an automatic sequential number. This becomes the global incident number or GIN. Um, and normally, it would be a really simple process just to match them together using this, this common number. Um, in, in real life, though, of course, IT systems don't talk to each other <laughs> seamlessly and perfectly, and this isn't the case. What we actually end up with is a process, or what's, what's, what's transpired, and this is how it currently works, is that the, the, the GIN number is actually conveyed manually by the Coast Guard across to the RNLI, across to an RNLI volunteer, perhaps at the base station for the lifeboat. And there's quite often, in three, about 3% 3 of, of cases, uh, the GIN number isn't conveyed across correctly. There's a typo or it's misheard or whatever. That, that manual step is essentially a huge source of error. Um, so this is obviously far from ideal, um, but it's, it's just, you know, highlights the fact that it's quite a, you know, we're not, we don't have one single response agency. It's, there's, there's, there's more than, uh, there's a lot of actors involved really. So, Okay, so clearly these two records don't match up. The red dot is where the RNLI think that record is, and the blue one is where it actually occurred, according to the Coast Guard. How about using um, location to ma match them up? Surely we could, you know, they happen in the same place, right? Well, that's a problem as well. <laughs> um, this graphic, show, this map shows um, two point locations for the same incident. Um, on the right-hand side is where the call must have taken place uh, because the, that's where the Coast Guard have recorded it on the land. The dot on the left um, is where the RNLI performed the rescue. So legitimately, you have two locations where the incident's taken place. Um, and, you know, they're about a kilometre apart. So... I contrast this to the previous example where there's obviously a mistake in the data in terms of location. I know that these are the two correct locations because I've analysed the data manually, but the solution really is to take a step back and the command and control systems need to communicate seamlessly and automatically and there needs to be no human interaction at that step. Um, so it's not a problem that there's we're a patchwork quilt of agencies. We just need to take a retrospective joined-up approach, really. So uh, there is a thing called multi-agency incident transfer, or MATE. Well, the description alone sounds like kind of exactly what we need, really, um, i.e. an automatic data mapping process. Um, this was developed, has been developed over a number of years by uh, an organisation called British APCO, um, they're the British, British Association of Public Safety Communications Officials, um, which is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, but they're a non-profit organisation uh, uh, that, that was created in the early 90s with the specific remit for developing public safety technology. Uh, and 
you know, they developed Mate so that it, yeah, a police car could automatically communicate with an ambulance, uh, for example. It's a bit like a bit like a dictionary um, for one database talking to another. Um, it hasn't yet been developed specifically for the marine sector, but that's what we've uh, we've got involved with with this project. Um, it was originally designed to work with like an address database, for instance, and you know we're, we're lucky with the ordnance survey we have that uh, a very rich address database to work with. Um, so the Coast Guard, obviously this is known about, they've just started working with the, the MATE schema and the project, the, our project has produced like a blueprint for how we could map these two databases together. And this is a, a tiny sort of uh, snapshot, if you like, with the RNLI's open data as it happens, uh, column on the left uh, and the MCA data on the right. And the, the MAIT MATE schema tag in the middle. So in this uh, instance, uh, the example I've highlighted is where date of launch can obviously be mapped to creation date using origin incident date in the middle. Um, so it's a bit like, you know, if one RNLI data was English and MCA data was French, it's a bit like an English-French dictionary that works both ways uh, in the middle, you see. And this is kind of really important um, because the command and control systems are, are constantly evolving um, and they really need to be developed to accommodate a common format for data interchange. So, you know, the RNLI as an organization, um, you know, has its has autonomy over the systems that it develops, as do the MCA, obviously. Um, and there is no real way that I don't think it's ever envisaged that there will be one agency. Um, we need to find a way to work in the middle. So that's the sort of boring bit for the uh, in terms of the data mapping but in a sort of um a longer perspective uh, you know looking a bit uh, one step further will be to develop an open marine incident data standard um and it could be called marine incident markup language or mimil um and the reason why we've we've kind of looked at this is because uh this would be quite relatively quite easy to do because we could extend the capabilities of uh, geography or geographic markup language, GML, which has been around for about 20 odd years. Um, the Ordnance Survey used GML to, to send out their uh, master map product. Uh, it's an open standard for geographic data and it's extremely powerful. Um, and literally the toolkit for what we need to do is all there. And it's open. Um, so where you have, um, it, it can accommodate complex geographic features like multi-part features. So the example that I've got there, uh, where you have Hawaii, um, you know, uh, basically a single state of the USA that's uh, represented as a number of different polygons. Each one of those polygons belongs to Hawaii. You have to represent it as a, as a multi-part feature, if you like. Well, Going back to that example that I showed, we can accommodate that. We can we can have multi-part points in GML, uh, and that's perfect because that then allows us to to store two valid uh, points, if you like, for the same feature on the same incident. So, one looking at this, we would be able to, uh, or in the future, we'll be able to bind future command and control systems to a common data standard. 
So uh, the, the benefits of open data are, are obvious, um, but, and, and we are realistically quite away from a fully open marine incident database, despite the fact that RNLI have released some of theirs and there's an awful lot of work that's happened over the last 12 months to, to facilitate that. Um, we're a patchwork quilt of marine response, if you like, but this need not be a bad thing. Um, you know, a, a really joined up approach can be achieved just by developing uh, interchange formats with existing, uh, with what we've got already. And an open marine data standard would really be, uh, you know, the cherry on top, really. Um, and the, I think there's quite a bit of uh, appetite for that that's come out in, in, in this project. So what I want to do is to just conclude with um, some exam an example of we the project that uh, we worked on prior to, uh, th to this current project. It was called the Big Marine Data Project. Uh, and this was also funded by Lloyd's Register. But it was, um, it was all about harnessing the wealth of real-time data, basically. Um, and, you know, we've, we've already looked in this presentation about what happens when people need rescuing. Um, what if we could, you know, use data to sort of go one step prior to that and in a sort of preemptive way? And what we did here was to use artificial intelligence, AI, uh, to count the number of people uh, basically on beaches. And in this case, this is Dorset Council's webcam for, for, for Weymouth Beach, which is streamed live. Uh, and we used an open source framework called TensorFlow uh, and an open source library uh, called the COCO library, which is common objects in context. So, and we fed all of this into one of the um, university supercomputers to, to generate it. It does take quite a bit of computing power. Um, but the, uh, essentially you end up with um, snapshots of how many people um, are in the image and, uh, and, and you can produce graphs and all sorts of metrics from that. The, the graph at the bottom there, the peak is kind of in the middle, um, to, slightly to the right. That's the number of people on August bank holiday that attended, that are on, uh, this is obviously, this is pre-COVID <laughs> obviously, um, August bank holiday that were on the beach and they were, it was just packed, it was absolutely packed. And um, it just gives a kind of really interesting insight into what can be done. Because if you take that slightly further, um, you can use AI and image recognition as, as is happening in, in a project in Japan to spot, to detect dangerous rip current areas, basically. Um, and there's, you know, this is a huge thing because we have lots and lots of uh, coastline, obviously, beaches and dangerous rip currents are everywhere. Um, but with specially positioned uh, webcams, Oh, actually, so I've clicked on the link inadvertently. There we go. With specially uh, positioned webcams, um, we can use AI to, to count the number of people that are in the dangerous zone and actually automatically ping off alerts to, uh, uh, to lifesavers that are on the beach. They're perhaps not in the vicinity of where they need to be, but they can be. Um, and, you know, alerts on their 
on their smartwatches, wearable devices, whatever. So there's, there's a huge amount that can be done. And there's the kind of technology, the frameworks, the data, it's kind of there. It just needs bringing together in a, in a sort of, uh, uh, in, in a useful way, really. Um, that's, that pretty much concludes the presentation. Um, I'm there to, I'm here to answer questions. Okay. Great. Thanks, Chris. And don't need no to remind you to stop screen sharing. Yeah, no, uh, that's yeah. all done, yeah. <laughs> Just a reminder, if you have questions, if you could put them in the chat and then I will invite you to ask. Um, but yeah, thanks so much. Really interesting talk. Uh, I actually wanted to kick off with a question very sure, much from the ODI perspective, but um, yep. it's really encouraging to hear you describe this type of project as a catalyst and I know you kind of touched on other things like hackathons, um, but I was wondering like, if you had thoughts about what other interventions or initiatives you'd like to see in the sector so we can continue to develop these cool innovations and if you have thoughts about how the best way to support that. Well, I think the, um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, there's a lot that can happen, obviously. The, the project has kind of spawned uh, what are called the joint, what they've called the joint technical working groups between the Coast Guard and the RNLI. And they're now underway. And the, the second one happened um, a week or two ago. Um, but really, this project was a catalyst for them to come together. The I think the two agencies, I'm right in saying that uh, perhaps um, they had in place all of the data sharing agreements to, to sort of go ahead and share their data with one another. But the practicalities of how that could be done was very, uh, you know, they, they didn't get further than the agreements really. So nothing really happened. So this has kind of been on the agenda for them for a long time. And I, I think it's about um, the joint technical working groups were set up specifically to sort of be divorced from any of the sort of organizational politics and you know, sort of red tape that they might come up against. Um, so it's so I suppose the key thing for the, for things to facilitate uh, initiatives like this, you need that I think a sort of um, you need to take a simplistic view and just get the technical people in the room uh, to sort of make things happen. If you like, um, that would probably be the best way to to put this one into context. Great, thank you. Uh, Hannah, you've got a question? Yeah, mine was kind of about the, the sources of data and whether you had sort of wish list or a, an ideal world um, example of a, a, a source of data in the, in the private sector or somewhere unexpected that would add something to the current information that people have for saving lives at sea. Um, that's really, again, another good one. Um, I think one of the things that we looked at um, was how you can reliably uh, locate uh, an incident. And one of, the, one of the things that, I don't know if people are aware of what three words, um, really, really clever uh, initiative where you have a, and everywhere on earth can be described by a three meter by three meter uh, grid cell um, and, and described by three words and, and it's really simple so we the 
but there is no that's you know in theory that's really useful and the rnli have looked at that to enhance the way that they um you know identify where something's happening because obviously there's no there is no street address or, or, or addressable um address identifier for somewhere on a beach or, or a cliff edge um but that's not without its problems because the you know any address database or, or way of identifying somewhere needs to be ubiquitous and used by everyone so it's and, and the rnli have tried that system in and, and actually come up with problems whereby if the word is misspelt or misheard one of the words you can end up halfway across the atlantic as, as opposed to being on the off the coast of weymouth where you need to be um that would be but there is that so um i just sort of simplify that the yeah, I think um, they have looked at ways in which uh, address databases that can be used um, to improve the situation. Um, I can't think of any other additional sort of things that need to be brought in, though, uh, off the top of my head. Thank you. Uh, Neil, would you like to say your question? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a simple question. Just you mentioned a couple of um, bits of tech that you've used, um, a couple of libraries and things like that. Just to catch that, I didn't quite catch it at the time. Oh yes, yeah, sure. Was that the um, the for the image recognition? I think it was just before that you mentioned something to do with Coco, which obviously. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is memorable, sure. More memorable. Yeah, yeah. The so Coco is the um, is the it stands for the Common Objects in Context Library. Um, and it's basically, so it's like, instead of having like a person you, you, in, in any image recognition uh, scenario, you're not going to have a person standing at the camera with his arms by his side or, or whatever. You're more likely to have a person pushing a pushchair or walking a dog or at an oblique angle. So the common objects in context library is a kind of off the shelf toolkit that you can use to apply that to, to a given image. Uh, so that's what that's the kind of and, and really these were free off the shelf tools that we were using and the other the main uh, ai uh, sort of framework if you like is called tensorflow t-e-n-s-o-r flow so tensorflow and, and coco were the two things that we put together thanks um, so quick google. um yeah thanks very much it was a really interesting presentation the way that you've kind of got some real world issues um, yeah. and, uh, part of me is thinking I feel safer that I'm being um, uh, monitored quite as much on beaches, but <laughs> how much I'm being monitored on beaches. But um, yeah. and you also kind of alluded to the fact that a lot of the problem is more organisational rather than necessarily technical. Um, it seems to be yeah. a common theme for this. Yeah, I I think that's right, and. Um, yeah in terms of data it definitely is um the 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 coast guard and um you know the rnli they will they're both very big organizations and to get the right people in the room at the right time to discuss the the pressing matters are are a challenge uh, and it's you know it's played itself out over this year uh, and it's been evident you know evidently the case because covid has hampered some of it but um yeah that's i, I would imagine that to be a challenge everywhere basically very true
Hello, sorry, you're still there. I don't know. Has anybody got any other questions? We've just got a classic dog incident going off here. Um, My dog's gone out for a walk. I <laughs> thank goodness. But yeah, no, that's come back from lunch. So um, um, if I'll come back if anybody's got any uh, after somebody else has got some questions. Sure. Yeah, just seen there's one from Ian. If you'd like to ask. Would you rather I read it out? Oh, no, you are there. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't expecting to say it live. No, I'm familiar with AIS data, which is where ships share their yeah. GPS tracks. Yeah. Um, we seem a chance to, to track patterns of life. If um, so, so Some ships, some types of craft do go stationary, like fishing vessels, mm -hmm. but ferries and merchant ships would very rarely stop because it's a waste of fuel. Um, yeah. That would seem an opportunity for tracking um, incidents. Um, yeah. easier than the visual recognition as well yes yes absolutely um the we haven't looked at we um haven't looked at ais data as part of this um that was the the mca obviously do uh, and it, it is part of their um kind of remit to bring that on on board if you like um but the this is purely for um you know sort of joe public <laughs> Uh, rescues if you like in the coastal and nearshore environment but um, okay. I, I do take your point it is certainly doable and, and can be done quite easily actually because AIS data is is, is out there and you know can be streamed for free it's, it's no problem mm -hmm. yeah. yeah all right thank you cool okay so questions just having a look I did have another observation if um Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. I think there's a couple of things you mentioned. One was, um, it sounded like, or I heard, um, get the um, get the big knobs out of the room and get the technical people talking to each other. Uh -huh. yeah, that was that's probably a liberal interpretation of what I heard. Um, <laughs> but you you kind of mentioned that um, these markup languages. Yeah. Um, and as a kind of almost, <clears throat> it almost sounded to me you know, it was a real spark going off in my head of. If you tell people, oh, we're developing a markup language for these interchanges, that yeah. kind of almost suddenly goes, oh, then it must be a real thing. Um, and um, with it, um, I mean, this as nicely as possible, but what you showed, that very simple mapping, uh, matching across, was very, very simple, straightforward. It seemed um, really a good place to start. Say, so we're doing a markup language. Yeah. Um, we're going to make it an industry standard by stealth, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. And away you go. Yeah, absolutely. It needn't be. So it's all built on XML, which is, it stands for extensible markup language. It's, and there are lots of derivatives of that. So GML, um, it was developed off the back of, of that KML, as you probably yeah. uh, come across with putting data onto Google Earth and such like. There, it's, it's extremely um, versatile in that it's a way it, it facilitates you know, data being transferred from one uh, entity to another. So, it, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's there's quite a bit of work to be done with the the multi-agency incident transfer. As I said, they were it was originally conceived um, to uh, to to go from one commander control system to another in a sort of way around like that. Um, but it wasn't developed with a marine uh, sort of in a marine context. It was all about terrestrial rescue. 
Um, but that's now changing. Um, they need to take that f f uh, further forward with the Coast Guard to, to make sure they capture everything. Um, and I believe they're even looking at a more centralized um, sort of focus to it in a sort of um, whereby a marine organization could go and get their uh, use mate, if you like, to go and get their the information they need to respond to via a centralized hub instead of going point to point around the outside, you know, uh, by organization. So th there's a lot, you know, it is happening. Um, but it's, I think it's, I think the very nature of the fact that we are a patchwork quilt in this country in lots of ways, um, there's no centralized agency. So these things kind of take a bit longer. Um, but it's, it's quite an exciting space to work in at the moment. I think it's quite it's quite a broad one, so sorry, it might be tricky, but I wondered if yeah. you have any insights or advice for how um, you do kind of get the right people in the room when it does come to dealing with like red tape and some of um, the politics that come with big organisations. That's an interesting one. Um, the Coast Guard, the MCA have recruited really heavily this year in the last 12 months in the data science sort of space. Um, and they... I believe they um, they start that there was a director that joined that was quite uh, you know came from a data science background if you like um, and that paved the way in itself for the for them to recruit uh, data science specialists and they're obviously all over that over list now and that you're going to see I think change I think I think um, I would only I would imagine the 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 ways to sort of recognize at the, the highest level in an organization that uh, it's a requirement or and it's a necessity going forward and then it can kind of cascade down from that really um it, that's certainly what's happened in the coast guard it, like i said it's exciting that they're, they're going to be changing the way they do things um from from going from quite a closed organization to really broadening things out uh, and and the rnli they're they're really quite progressive by by comparison if that's the right way to put it um they're not constrained by sort of the government red tape they're you know they can go ahead and 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 they've recognized the value of holding hackathons um releasing their data out and actually just you know let a room of people go play with the data and see what they come up with and it's it's fascinating really there's a lot going on um in this space does that kind of answer it, Ellen? I'd yeah, yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Okay. Yeah, cool. Okay. So are there any other questions? Feel free to put them in the chat or just unmute yourself. Um, Matt, would you, would you ah, okay. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, see that? Idea of hackathons is great. Yeah, they are, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, release some of the data sets. So um, the RNLI have in the last six months, um, maybe less than that, have released their, it's called ROS data, um, return of service. So they've, the RNLI have already got to a point where they've released an open data set. So it's not the, um, and I can send a link through, I can find it, no problem. Um, it's not the full picture of marine incidents. It's at best, you know, 50% or less, but nevertheless, it gives you an idea of where they respond uh, to incidents around the coastline. It's, it, it's, it's good. It is really good. It's point data. Great. I'll send that across. Yeah.
Any other any other questions? Uh, I've just received a direct question, so I'll ask it out. Um, it says, are you aware of any similar initiatives in other countries? No, actually. Um, I haven't had the chance to explore. Yeah, this did, didn't really, wasn't part of the scope to look at international initiatives. Um, I'd imagine, um, I'd imagine that going back to the, the patchwork quilt thing again, I, I doubt whether it's as complex. We're, we like to do things sort of, uh, we're a very data rich country, but we kind of do things quite in a quite a complex way here. Um, but it would be interesting to have a look at things. I mean, other than that example with Japan, where they're looking at AI to spot people in, in rip currents, which I think is really, really amazing. Um, there's no reason why we can't emulate that here. Um, no reason at all. Other than that, sorry, no. <laughs> okay, uh, if there's no more questions, I think we can wrap up. Uh, yeah, so thank you again, Chris. That was really interesting. Um, if you want to find out more about uh, this stimulus fund project that we did with Lloyd's Registers Foundation and see the other projects, and that's all available on the ODA website. And uh, as you hopefully know, we run these lunchtime lectures every Friday. So do go look at what's coming next. Fantastic. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.